Chapter Twenty Seven of Anglo-American Memories by George Washburn Smalley. This LibriVox recording is in the public domain. Chapter Twenty Seven: Civil War, Incidents in the Eighties, Sir George Trevelyan, Lord Barrymore. The streets of London were red one day in November, nineteen o nine, with placards proclaiming "The Lords Declare Civil War." I suppose the radicals thought it paid to force the note mr winston churchill was their bandmaster for the moment there is no more effective political rhetorician provided you accept that fallacy about the folly of the people against which the warning of mr lincoln passes unheeded but there was at least on one side a state of feeling in the country comparable to nothing i can remember except the feeling which prevailed during the home rule crisis and far stronger now than then in that crisis also the lords came to the rescue of the kingdom which they saved from disintegration and ruin ruin for the moment it would have been only to be finally averted by the reconquest of ireland even to the spectator those were stirring days england and ireland from eighteen eighty one onward had become the wild west the revolver was the real safeguard of personal liberty i don't think it will be quite like that now but it does seem as if the bitterness of contention and the personalities of politics would go further now than then perhaps have already gone further i was in ireland for a fortnight during one of the worst periods but there were times when london was as disturbed and distressful as ireland itself those were years of dynamite in england when as lord randolph churchill said the railway stations were flying about our ears and when london bridge came near being blown up and when englishmen in high places were targets from the prime minister down to his youngest colleague no man was safe without a guard of detectives and not then mr gladstone whose courage was high shook off his escort whenever he could other ministers paid more respect to a very real danger sir george trevelyan who was appointed chief secretary for ireland in eighteen eighty two submitted sensibly to the precautions the home office in scotland yard thought needful one afternoon i met trevelyan in a bond street shop we left the shop together two quite innocent-looking men were outside the door i hope you don't mind said trevelyan i am obliged to let them follow me they were scotland yard detectives as we walked down the street they were within earshot all the way their vigilance unrelaxing whether they thought their ward in greater or less danger because i was with him i cannot say we parted at the corner of piccadilly in both streets the throng on the sidewalk was dense but through it these men made their way without violence without haste but never for an instant allowing themselves to be separated from the chief secretary by so much as an arm's length he walked in peril not only real but eminent two days before his appointment as chief secretary his predecessor lord frederick cavendish and mr burke permanent under-secretary had been murdered to accept that inheritance of probable assassination was a gallant act quite characteristic of sir george trevelyan but i do not imagine that he or his friends ever while he held that office forgot what had happened in phoenix park not many evenings later i met sir george trevelyan at dinner 
if he had not been famous as a writer and member of parliament and irish secretary and much else he might well have been famous as a diner out he had the art of conversation his uncle's influence had left him in this respect untouched where macaulay discoursed and reeled off dreary pages of encyclopedic knowledge trevelyan talked lightly and well claiming no monopoly preaching no sermon wearying no company too well bred to show itself bored he had a felicity of allusion which was so wholly free from pedantry as to seem almost accidental his voice like browning's was strident and his laugh sometimes boisterous but this was in moments of excitement on this particular evening there was something besides his inspiriting talk which drew the attention of the company so long as the ladies were at table he talked with his wonted energy when the dining-room door had closed on the last of these departing angels trevelyan sank into his chair with a sigh drew a revolver from the breast-pocket of his coat laid it on the table and said to his host pray forgive me but if you knew how tired i am of carrying this thing about on sir george trevelyan as on others the irish secretaryship left its mark a year of office aged him as if it were ten he came out worn and grey not yet forty-five years old the tragedy was in one particular a tragicomedy half his moustache had turned white the other half black as before and i suppose it shook his nerve more or less and was perhaps responsible for that fickleness of purpose or of view which led him first to oppose and then to adopt mr gladstone's policy of home rule i saw one side of the irish question during a visit to lord barrymore and then mr smith barry and his beautiful american wife at fota island near queenstown mr william o'brien had launched shortly before this his new tipperary scheme of which one main object was to ruin mr smith barry who owned the old tipperary assassination was then only a political incident or instrument mr smith barry moreover was hated not only as a landowner but for having organized the one efficient defence against the spoliation of the landlords which down to that time had been discovered he had formed a company and raised a large sum of money among his english friends he himself being the largest contributor so he held the o'brien cohorts at bay at what money cost and at what personal risk few men knew but i apprehend that but for mr smith barry the plan of campaign and new tipperary would have succeeded and the south of ireland been handed over to the land league one night as i was on my way from my room to the drawing-room on the other side of the hall i saw by the front door a big man in a blue cavalry cloak and cap who had just entered he was laying aside his cloak as i passed and took out of their holsters first one and then another navy revolver both seven shooters i said too flippantly you take good care of yourself he turned on me sharply with a questioning look of keen eyes under heavy eyebrows are you a friend of smithbury i should hardly be staying in his house if i were not then i will tell you how you can best prove your friendship get him to carry what i carry is he in danger danger 
there's a detective at this moment behind every tree about the house and even so we don't know what may happen we hope he is safe here at home but he goes about unarmed and it is known he is unarmed and no man who does that can be sure of his life we have tried our best to make him take care of himself he will not now do you try this sudden outburst this appeal this flash of light upon the scene were all impressive the big man it turned out was the chief constable of the county he knew whereof he spoke i promised to do what i could and i talked with mr smithberry he was a man equally remarkable for courage and for coolness but in matters affecting his personal safety he did not use the judgment for which in other matters he was distinguished he could not be persuaded that anybody would think it worth while to kill him he knew well enough that the shooting of landlords had become a popular pastime but he could not or would not understand why he himself should be shot i am on good terms with my tenants my rents are fair rents i evict nobody what have they to gain by shooting me but it was not from his own tenants that trouble was expected it was not because mr smith barry was not a good landlord but because he was the leader of the landlords in the south of ireland and the most formidable opponent of the league that his life was threatened it may be so he said but i think i will go on as i am and from that nobody could move him now as it happened shortly before i left london i had met one of the chief officials in the home office who said to me you are going to ireland yes but how do you know never mind how i know what i want to say to you is take a revolver with you i was on the point of making a light answer but stopped if you get a hint of that kind from a man who rules over the criminal department of the home office and the police generally you accept it and do as you are told i had a revolver with me therefore and when the time came to go back to london i left it in its case on mr smithberry's writing-table with a letter asking him to accept it from me and once more begging him to carry it if only that it might be known that he carried it or if only out of friendship to me this prevailed he wrote me that he still thought we made a useless fuss about it but he could not refuse the gift and he could not refuse to carry it no letter ever pleased me more i have never again seen my friend the chief constable but i have never forgotten him and i think of him now as a fine impersonation of that authority of the law which in those turbulent days he asserted and successfully maintained against great odds End of chapter 27